Hello everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. This is an episode of the podcast series Shade in Cambridge. My name is Raquel and I'm a PhD researcher at the Faculty of Education at the University of Cambridge and I'm a member of Wolfson College. This podcast series is a part of a new initiative that um, we're running at the college called Let's Talk About Race and Racism. I'm sure I don't need to rehearse the many reasons, particularly in the last 18 months, of why these questions have become very pertinent. This is an attempt by a number of us at the college to restart um, conversation and dialogues around race, racism and racist aggression, but also to use these conversations to take positive actions within the college, uh, the University of Cambridge and hopefully in, in the wider society as well. I'm really pleased to welcome our guest, my friend and former colleague, uh, Paul Binns. Paul studied at Girton College here at the University of Cambridge. He graduated with an MPhil in history and in 1996. His research interests included how class and race intersect with culture and political economy and international relations through the lenses of dependency and post-colonial theory. Paul is a secondary school teacher and a teacher trainer for the International Baccalaureate. Paul is also a doctoral student at the Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium. His research revolves around deindustrializing urban Britain, musical from um, Henri Lefavre theory of the production of space. Paul, thank you so much for accepting the invitation and talking with me today. Thank you for inviting me, Michael. Thank you. So, Paul, you were born in London from a newly arrived uh, parents from the Caribbean, each one from a different country, and you were educated in the British state school sector. So I'm guessing that the journey that brought you to the University of Cambridge was not a straightforward one. Could you tell us a bit about that journey? I mean... When you were, say, 15 or 16, did you see yourself ending up here? Well, my my parents, as I said, were, as you said, were from two different countries. They were part of the decolonisation protest uh, movement, sorry, after World War II. So my mum's from Guyana and my dad's Jamaican. And they arrived in the early 60s um, looking for work in what was then the mother country. I was born in 1968 in North London. And um, in the 1970s, we, when I was five or six, we moved from uh, an area in North London that was heavily uh, populated with Caribbean immigrants to the borderlands of London and Essex that were very much um, white working class areas. So I grew up from about the age of six being one of the only people of colour, uh, one of the only children, children of colour in my school. And I went to a comprehensive state school. It was a place where there was a high degree of delinquency. There was a, a period of this kind of um, transition in British society from the Keynesian welfare state uh, system to the Thatcherite neoliberal system. And so around about 15 years old, there was no real inkling that I would end up either studying in a place 
like Cambridge University, or even ever visiting or living and working in another country. Uh, I left school at 18. I didn't do very well in my exams. And I moved to the south coast of Britain to a place called Bournemouth, where I worked in um, unskilled labour, spent times and periods unemployed on uh, income support. I realised the absolute corruption of the Thatcher regime of recategorising people out of unemployment benefit so that the numbers of unemployed could be manipulated. Um, one way they did that was if you hadn't paid enough tax credits over a period of time, and this is the late 80s, then you were disqualified for unemployment benefit and you were put on something called income support, which is much lower and didn't count as being unemployed, as income support implies, right? And eventually um, I did all kinds of jobs. I, I drove um, seven and a half tonne lorries. I worked on building sites. I did floor screening. At the age of about 22 years old, I became curious for the first time about reading, reading history, the antified history, fascinating. And I decided that uh, I wanted to go to university to study history itself. And so um, I applied not for any career um, objectives, just for the love of reading and studying history. And I was accepted at uh, a university in North London called Middlesex University. So that was my first um, full circle in the sense that I ended up studying at a university which was literally one kilometre from where I was originally born to my two Caribbean parents. And uh, I was doing um, history and also uh, third world development studies. After about two years, the university had won an award for regarding its uh, history department for its publishing. And uh, one of the part of the award was that a prominent professor of history would teach uh, one class a semester for three years. And that uh, professor of history was a man called Professor Peter Parrish. He was a, a world-famous historian on the American Civil War and American Reconstruction period. And he agreed to teach in one semester American Civil War history and in the second semester American Reconstruction history. And in my, for my third year, for my third and final year, I just so happened to choose those papers. So when I took Professor Paris's classes, he very quickly took an interest in me. And looking at my work, he advised me that I should um, apply to Cambridge University to do a postgraduate course. And he suggested that because he was a fellow of Cambridge University. He said that he would be a mentor for me during the application process. I, mean, I had no idea. I only knew that Cambridge was a you know, a very prestigious university, but I had, I had no idea. I knew nothing about it. And he said, look, have, read around, read about the colleges and, you know, see which one you kind of like the sound of, blah, blah, blah. So at our first meeting, um, I arrived and he said to me, have you chosen a college that you would like to apply to? And out of my naivety, I said to him, yes, I've, I've chosen Jesus Christ College. 
Is that okay? And he started laughing. Yeah, very friendly, old fellow. Yeah, and he was very forgiving. He said, no, 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 there's Jesus College and there's Christ College. There isn't a Jesus Christ College, right? So eventually I applied to uh, Girton and I was accepted. That was in uh, March of my final year at Middlesex. And um, I applied for the funding and didn't receive the funding. Um, so there was a time in March when I, I decided I wasn't going to go because obviously even back then the costs were, you know, very high. And for a student that had, had been part of the early um, period of the marketization of education where um, students had to take out loans to provide profit for companies in order to be educated, I was already in debt worked out some funding and took a bank loan out for most of the um, costs. My dad scraped together a couple of thousand um, pounds, which is very hard for both my parents because I was born to two unskilled Caribbean workers. My mum worked in a supermarket most of her life, and my dad was an unskilled uh, guillotine operator in a printing um, factory. It's a story of... um, uh, mishaps, chance, and just the, as the, you know, the Spanish will say, casualidad. When I, I was listening to you talk about the, <clears throat> the path to Cambridge, how much would someone feel yeah. welcome or inspired to actually do academic intellectual work if you arrive at a place that it's you have to reinvent you yourself socially maybe or, or do you see those are really interesting questions yeah Very how much how many of your childhood friends did you recognize in the people you saw in cambridge there was this kind of i think a growing identity dichotomy in britain that has been very much more pronounced since most times that was reflective of the people i knew in Middlesex and the people I went to school with. Um, and that is, I suppose, what people refer to these days as the, the cultural wars, right? Kind of white working class and um, ethnic liberal Britain, the former really represented by my school uh, friends and uh, the latter represented by the people I knew in Middlesex seem to find themselves further and further apart in the current climate, you know, um, when actual when actual fact, there needs to be a, a real social um, alliance building between those two groups. But anyway, um, but I knew people, so I, I didn't meet anyone from my schooling, the type of person I went to school with, not a single person uh, at Cambridge, no. Um, and we talk about barriers. You did mention bureaucratical barriers. Um, they are things that I had um, encountered, and I told some of the stories about the financial bureaucratical barriers, but also kind of cultural barriers. And remember that when I came up to Cambridge in the from Middlesex for the interview about um, interim spring, part of my interview was that I was taken over by the interviewer the Sydney Sussex College for lunch. Um, 
the student luncheon area where I had um, the interviewer who was a professor of history sat opposite me. And then next to me was uh, another professor of history from another college. And I got the distinct impression that um, that was also part informally of the interview. And uh, when I tell that story in, in with regards to cultural barriers and barriers of values that I have the distinct impression, I think back on those days and that incident, uh, eating lunch in Sydney, Sussex, it was a kind of an etiquette test, whether I could, uh, I knew how to handle a knife and fork and I knew the procedures of uh, a meal of multiple courses. It was a, a test that I'd failed miserably because I didn't have the etiquette and how to do those things. And it's interesting, I have to say something, it's interesting that maybe that if you ask those people, they might say, no, that it was not the intention at all, but it doesn't change the fact that for you, that is how it felt. Do you see? Oh, well, absolutely, absolutely. And um, when we returned to the interview room, the interviewer concluded interview by saying to me have you ever considered doing a past part-time course in Nottingham and that was the end of the interview so I uh, <laughs> I walked back to Cambridge station and I was just walking along the pavement there crying and I was crying because it was so traumatic I mean so unnecessarily unfair you know um but miraculously, I was accepted. I think I was accepted because my mentor, Peter Parrish, actually put some pressure on whoever it was just to, you know, overcome those prejudices and accept me. And ironically enough, when I arrived at Cambridge to start my MPhil, the person who had taken me to see Sussex for lunch and studiously observed how I handled knives and forks and the etiquette and procedures for of mealtimes. And the who was the same person who had advised me to instead apply for a part-time course in Nottingham was my supervisor. When I'd finished my MPhil, again, that very same person told me that he had thought I'd been one of the best research students he'd had. So I think that I had kind of at least proved something to him uh, from a, a very uh, difficult start between the two of us. So those kind of barriers, of course, bureaucratic and economic. Economic barriers for me are, are so um, central to the conversation because as education becomes commodified, then of course it has to be socio-economically exclusive. Just just the logical result um, of marketizing education you know but I, I also think it's kind of wrapped up of course this these kind of um class barriers are wrapped up of course in um barriers of etiquette and values i know only after i left that behind my back the other research students used to refer to me as the sun reader because of my my accent i have a question do you see yourself you talk a lot when you talk about yourself and your experience and your journey 
you refer a lot about the social economic barrier, the class barrier, and less yeah. less about the race barrier. I very strongly have sensed that the barriers that were initially, when I was a child, racial, have become more based on class as I have broken out of a working class community and I became a professional and I grew more successful. I've been very much aware that class has become very much more uh, dominant for me in the professions. I remember when I was at Cambridge, I really thought to myself, the things that I see around me that I feel are restrictive are just as much to do with class as they have to do with race. I think, you know, the two are so so intertwined, of course. Um, you know, that famous um, quote by Lenin that uh, fascism is capitalism in crisis, right? Mm. When I was a young child, seven, eight, nine, ten, I remember the prevalence of the kind of old lumpen violent National Front in Great Britain in the late 70s. But there's no coincidence that that, that version of the National Front, very violent, um, a very working class movement. I'm curious about something you said at the beginning of our conversation. You were talking about your journey and living in Argentina and then living in Belgium. Could you speak a bit about what you've learned, experienced, lived through regarding racial relations or maybe class relations, if this is something that resonates more with your journey in the countries you have lived and, and how that influences the thoughts you have about uh, race relations and class relations and how it manifests itself self in Britain? Yeah, sure. Um, the first thing uh, that really struck me was when I became an international school teacher of history, Contrary to what I had expected, I was really struck by um, how middle class the profession was. Contrary to many of the stereotypes, it was the first and only time in my life where I, where I could forget about race. That is to say, it was something, my ethnicity, the colour of my skin, really wasn't uh, an issue for me in any kind of relation, be those relations professional or social or romantic relations, you know. And maybe because you were British, a lot of people in a lot of situations when I was living in Argentina didn't know I was British. These are ways of being treated and ways of relating to people before I've even opened my mouth. What was interesting also about Argentina was I came across a lot of um, these um, expatriate white British teachers. I was very struck by by their how they related to the the local culture and local society, you know. And it made me realise how much of the racial superiority in the international imperialist system is really built on some kind of moral superiority. So they would often reserve the, the kind of the moral paternal um, authority in social relations to themselves because they were British and... Uh, Britain is a more successful country than Argentina, so then of course 
know, things should be done in a, in a British way or Argentinians individually were seen as people who were culpable for Argentina's lower level of development. You know, there's no idea of British imperial power or these expats, white British teachers were actually people who were riding the wave of history, basically, where the only reason why they were vastly rewarded around the world in these countries wasn't because they were more talented than local teachers. Most of the time, it's quite the opposite. I was so impressed by Argentinian teachers and how they how they operated and their pedagogy and their commitment. But simply because they were born in an English-speaking country and had a teaching, teaching certification from that country. And that gave them the kind of opportunities, kind of an endless, fantastical life opportunity that could continue for the entirety of the professional career that was closed to anyone who wasn't uh, born and who didn't study and uh, qualify as a teacher um, in an Anglo-speaking country, in particular the United States and Great Britain. So it also made me feel rather guilty, especially once I left Argentina, that um, I had participated in basically a transfer of wealth from a Latin American country to the global north where I would deposit the the, um, the salary that was far in excess of any local teacher and that I was treated um, in a way that by dint of where I was from, I was treated in a way and I was rewarded in a way that was far in excess of what I had deserved, you know. So Argentina was a, a really important experience for me to start to think about the international system and how it treats individuals um, and the kind of wave of history that apportions um, opportunities, professional opportunities and access to wealth and, and privilege uh, to people depending on where they were born. There was an interesting thing actually uh, while I was there was that um, the system that I'd left behind in Britain kind of followed me in some ways because the expat white British teachers and even though I'd known them for a number of years, they would be arranging um, golf uh, days and things like this. <laughs> uh, I, would, I, would ne- I would never be invited. So, my friends who are Argentinian always just say to me, "No, no Paul, you're, you're you're not English. You're not English." Because I came to understand you have a far greater understanding of uh, imperialist global systems and uh, the unfairness. Uh, that it apportions out to people uh, depending on just where they were born, basically. Um, so when I came back to Europe, I moved to Belgium. The race relations in Belgium was rather interesting. It made me feel that there was this particular type of racial um, categorization that exists in the social democracies of Northern Europe. It's very different from a liberal democracy um, such as Great Britain. And in many ways, um, far more problematic. You know, it, it reminded me of the race relations that I'd grown up in in the 70s, basically. So very parochial, very uh, old-fashioned, um, 
of racism that thinks racism is, is based around a, race, a society that thinks racism is basically based around um, uh, nasty names for people, um, no awareness of structural dynamics of racism at all, and the kind of flagrant uh, uh, exhibiting of racist um, imagery uh, that reminded me of 1970s Britain. You know, for example, when I first arrived in Belgium, I went to see the battlefields of Ypres. I went to a confectionery shop. Uh, you know, Raquel, how much Belgians like their chocolate and they have all these special shops of chocolate. Yeah. I was shocked to see that in one of the trays there had been thousands and thousands of chocolates that had been moulded into little brown hands. And as you know, one of the punishments of Leopold towards the Congolese during the Belgian occupation was to cut people's hands off if they didn't collect and find enough rubber for the um, Belgian primitive extraction of resources from the Congo. And I remember speaking to the person there and they were completely oblivious to how that could ever be conceived as not only racist but offensive. When you look at the opportunities that are still denied to, let's say, one of the oldest immigrant groups of colour in Britain, which is Afro-Caribbean, Pakistani populations in particular. All those populations have been there for some of those 60 years and still they live in their own place in the hierarchy uh, rather than you know having access to the type of modern opportunity that you expect people who are now far more British than they could ever be Jamaican or Trinidadian uh, as their grandparents were. Mm-hmm. How much of that the I think your experiences, the journey you had, the perceptions and this analysis that you're making, how much of that went into and goes into your research interest, both in your MPhil and, and now in your PhD? Could you explain a bit about what you do, what's your what area of interest there, and maybe do, do this bridging for us on where did yeah. that... In, I, I, I've learned now that doing research in social sciences is very much doing research about your own journey. It's, and I, this was not, because I came from the experimental sciences when I arrived here at Cambridge. So I had to learn how to be a social science researcher. And it's, it's fascinating to me how your interest, what you desi- decide is your path as a researcher, what is your ontology and your epistemological choices, they are actually a product of your personal history. So I'm a bit curious about if you could tell us a bit about your research then and now, and tell us a bit about how much your own journey bled into and bleeds into your research. Yeah, that's interesting. Um... I think one thing, uh, my MPhil was uh, research into the Reconstruction period in American history. That's the period um, after the Civil War when the notorious um, Union government in Washington attempted to socially, politically reconstruct the southern states 
that he had defeated, and in particular racially reconstruct them. Now that slavery, American slavery, had been um, abolished. But in particular, it's quite interesting you say about your own life journey, your own biography, almost. I had chosen to research um, race relations within this reconstruction context in the only state and of the only people that were not part of this African-American and white American dichotomy. And what I meant by that is I chose, I'm interested in a third ethnic minority that lived predominantly in Texas, which itself experienced an intersection with the race relations of reconstruction, that was Mexican-Americans. And so I looked into how um, Mexican-American Texans related to this racial and social reconstruction of the defeated Confederate state of Texas. Now, why I think that is of interest to myself biographically is I'll need to go back to my family history. So I was born to, I was properly, I know the term at the moment, uh, these days is kind of very trendy. I was properly a third culture child. So my two parents, as I mentioned earlier, are from two different countries, born in a third country. My mum is Guyanese and she's dark skinned. Guyanese, uh, Indian heritage. And my dad is um, a white-skinned Jamaican. And so I was mixed race, but also part of a very multi-ethnic um, extended family regarding those who had immigrated. I'd become intently aware when I was in my 20s of the heritage of British imperial race relations between my cousins and I in the 70s and 80s through the measurement of pigmentation. Two or three of the cousins, including myself, were mixed race. We had lighter skin. Two of my cousins were mixed race Indian and Afro-Caribbean. They had darker skin. In my 20s, when I was doing my research, it coincided with this time, as I said before, when I was thinking about the heritage of the kind of familial politics of my extended family. One of the striking and most shocking conclusions that just occurred to me in my 20s was that myself, my cousin and my sister, who were half Indian and half white and had fair skin and straighter hair, were always treated better in the family. Always. And that my cousins who were half Indian, half Afro-Caribbean, were always treated worse. The power of this, this system is so strong that it creeps itself inside family culture. Is that what we're, we're thinking? Yes, it, it creeps itself inside and in between loved ones.